From federal policymakers to agency implementers, we've heard a ton of talk about artificial intelligence, but neither group has done nearly everything it said it wants to do to promote effective use of AI. That's one takeaway from a new report card from the Information Technology Innovation Foundation. Hodan Omar is a policy analyst who helped develop that report card for ITIF's Center for Data Innovation. She talked about some of the findings with Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. One of the things I found working in AI policy here in the United States is whenever you talk about AI policy, people are often speaking about very different things. So, you know, some people could be talking about this new initiative to ensure that individuals and AI researchers have access to the compute they need. Many other people are talking about regulation and if it's right or wrong and whether it should be closer to the EU or further away from the EU. Some people are talking about AI R&D. And so the whole idea of the report was kind of to take a comprehensive view of U.S. AI policy at a high level for the United States and really think about what U.S. AI policy means. I kind of chose the nine most prominent policies that the United States uses to kind of fuel AI innovation and competitiveness. And this report is really measuring the United States against itself. So if I say it's approaching expectations or it's meeting expectations. It's sort of the way that a report card would be for an individual child. You know, what is the potential for this individual? What is the potential for the United States and how is it faring against what it could be doing rather than kind of comparing it against other countries? We've done other reports about the bottom line when it comes to the U.S. and how it's doing in AI innovation and competitiveness, looking at other countries. So saying, you know, the United States in general, when it comes to USAI policy, we have a report out looking against the EU and China. And that report kind of says that the US is coming in first. This report, because it's looking against the United States' own potential against itself, the bottom line is kind of hard to say just because it varies so differently in those nine areas. Fair enough. I want to drill into just a couple of them. Again, for the sake of time, I want to point our listeners to our website where we will post the full report because you do have recommendations in each of the nine areas. But just to focus on workforce as a topic for starters here, it's the one area where you say the U.S. is failing expectations, and it's also the one area where you spend out of the nine the most detail in the report. Talk us through what you see as some of the biggest struggles here. It sounds like a lot of it is really just sheer quantity. Yeah. So when it comes to the AI workforce and strengthening the AI workforce in the report, I kind of break this section up into looking at AI education. So that's primary and secondary AI education, also higher AI education, and then looking at things like workforce training, and then also our immigration policies. Because, you know, for the United States, it's not about just training up domestic talent. It's also about whether we're able to attract and retain talent from other countries, particularly because for AI, AI innovation is really reliant on a lot of foreign talent. What I find in the report is when it comes to AI education, it's really quite patchy at the kind of primary and secondary level. So, you know, the US in general, its education approach has always been decentralized. And that's good on one hand because it's good for creativity and innovation. You know, if one school wants to do something, it has the ability to be able to test those things. But if that's going well, how do we ensure that we spread that across the country? And what the report kind of finds is that there are hotspots of areas or schools or regions that have done the investments that they need to do, have innovated when it comes to AI education, and their children are doing well. But the rest of the country isn't faring as well. And and how do we really address that? There are recommendations in the report for that. And then when it comes to higher AI education, the United States has always been really, really good about having strong AI programs at the kind of undergraduate and graduate level. But what the report finds is that higher educational institutions aren't 
able to really respond to many of the market signals. More and more companies and organizations want people with graduate degrees in AI, and that means that students want to study it more and more. The demand for AI education at the higher level is really, really high, and U.S. institutions just aren't able to deliver or to provide the supply for the demand that's being you know, experienced. And there's this kind of question of where is the responsibility on institutions and where is the responsibility for government? And there are kind of recommendations on both ends of that because institutions have a really important role to play. Being able to educate AI talent is good for the university itself. And we've seen things like I have another report out that came out two weeks ago, which is looking at a partnership between the University of Florida and NVIDIA. It's essentially become the first AI university looking at creating AI curriculum across the campus. And that was really a public-private partnership. And that's the institution really doing its own thing. The state government has been involved, but you know, how do we replicate that? That report really looks at that. But there's also this idea in the report about AI credentials. And this is something that the government can get involved in because if a student wants to have AI credentials, they can do so through their own educational institutions like the University of Florida is created these AI credentials, but there are lots of private companies that provide these AI credentials. But, you know, what is the demand for them? Are organizations really using these AI credentials? When they look to hire individuals, do they look for AI credentials? Do they accept AI credentials? There's no point in really creating all these AI credentials if organizations aren't going to use them or or going to accept them. You know, if the government, which also needs AI workers, begins to accept these for itself, that could really spur private organizations doing the same thing. A lot of those training and education initiatives that you just talked about seems like they're going to take some time to grow the workforce that we need. It's interesting to me that the two specific recommendations that you have at the end of the section are directed toward Congress are both related to immigration. And I wonder if that's because you think that's a shorter term way to start solving this problem. Is that the right way to think about this short term for immigration and longer term for education? I would say you really need both right now. It's just more about that you need both types and it's the importance is really more about the importance of attracting foreign talent. Foreign born talent has always played a vital role in, in innovation and competitiveness. And it's particularly plays an important role in AI. I think there's an interesting statistic I point to in the report that it's important, not just for people who are going into established companies, but really for AI startups. So I point to some other research that was done by another think tank that finds that if you look at the top 50 AI startups, uh, you know, what Forbes describes as the top 50 AI startups, 66% of those have a founder who is foreign born, who came here on an immigration status. And also there's statistics in, you know, my report about just how much the United States relies on foreign talent. It does so predominantly for AI innovation and competitiveness. And that's why there are specific reports about um, updating the kind of immigration process for these individuals to make sure that they can kind of work here and want to. And also looking, this is an area where I kind of also highlight what other countries have been doing, because several countries in the last five years have updated their immigration policies to be able to kind of attract talent. They understand that this is something that's very, very important, and they've um, updated their policies to do so, whereas, you know, immigration policy in the United States has been stagnant for you know decades want to hit at least one of the other policy areas in the short time that we have with you, which is promoting government adoption of AI. I think some of your findings in this area really mirror our experience covering these issues for Federal News Network, which is enormous amount of talk about AI in government, relatively little adoption. Is that a fair way to put it? And then maybe talk a bit about why you think it's important for government to be a leader here. 
Yeah, I think that is a fair way to put it. Again, I think when government does things, it really spurs adoption in the private sector. So there's a kind of twofold role here for government. It's one, using AI to kind of complete its own missions, because AI will help in many government missions across agencies, but also to signal to the private sector the benefit of doing so and kind of promote best practices to ensure that they do so in ways that are kind of uh, good of their operating budgets to AI innovation. Another issue is just not having direction from the top. A recommendation in the report is that every federal agency should develop its own AI strategy. We've seen this from, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services have got one. You know, the FDA have been doing work in this, the Department of Veteran Affairs, and every agency should really think about what is our direction? What are we trying to do? Because if you don't have direction from the top, how are you going to really spur adoption? Another thing is procurement. Some of the research in the report looks at how when you look at the kind of federal contracts, where they go to, it's really concentrated around the kind of East Coast. Like I think it's about, I say, 87% of federal contracts awarded for um, robotic process automation went to companies in Virginia and New York. Being able to ensure that across the country, the best firms are able to contract with the government, that's going to really help to ensure that the government has the best products for the best price. And one way to do that is to kind of develop an all-encompassing procurement process, whether that be through a kind of an all-encompassing procurement website for federal AI contracts. And that could be done through the AI Center of Excellence, which is um, now situated within the government services agency. So that's another report. And finally, one of my final reports in this area is really about calling out agencies that aren't innovating with AI. So the Government Accountability Office and the Council of the Inspectors General shouldn't just be looking at waste, fraud and abuse, but they should really be looking at the waste and inertia from a lack of AI innovation and calling out agencies that aren't doing enough to adopt AI. Just want to spend one more beat before we have to let you go on that recommendation that you have to GSA, because I think it's really important. And it also resonates with, I think, what we've seen in our coverage, which is so many little pilots around AI in little pockets of the federal government. And no one's really tried to do anything big. You talk about core processes here. Talk about what you mean. When I was thinking about this recommendation, it's really something similar to what we've seen in the Jake at the Department of Defense, Mm -hmm. where they have a centralized kind of body and agency that is looking at collecting, kind of identifying core processes within uh, DOD that could be transformed with AI and making sure that every different part of DOD is able to hone in and be able to access that. So you don't have this uh, replication and also kind of waste from different parts of the agency not being able to, you know, know what's going on and then having to do it themselves and just kind of wasting time and money. And so the recommendation here is for the AI Center of Excellence situated within GSA to identify kind of 20 to 50 core processes that could be transformed with AI. Things like customer service or chatbots. Chatbots are a really great way to use AI to improve the way that the federal government deals with citizens and consumers. And it's also one of the best ways to innovate with AI because one of the things that we often talk about is how do you build trust around AI? And if a government agency is using AI in a way that's going to be visibly helpful to consumers, it's going to help with trust because let's say, you know, I'm going down the road and the Department of Transportation has used AI to improve the road. 
I might not necessarily see that, you know? And so I don't know that the reason that I don't have potholes is because you've used AI to somehow identify where there are potholes and send people to fix that. But if the Department of Transportation is using an AI chatbot that's really, really good, and I'm trying to get bus times or something, and I know that I'm using AI or, or the Department of Transportation is using AI in a way that's useful for me, or not only builds trust, but it builds my support as a kind of resident or your support as a citizen for the government using AI. And so what are some core processes that would not only very easily transform a government agency, but also improve the trust and the ability for the agency to continue to innovate? Hodan Omar is a policy analyst at the Center for Data Innovation. We'll post a link to the AI report card she's been talking about with Jared Serbu at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, but she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took pr- um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? It's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One, I don't think I still am reflecting on. I've been out of the FBI about six years and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers and, you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. 
I think staying mission focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we, we actually work with a, a number of those, too, and, and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it, right? The seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job. He thought about explicitly was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances, um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour. And you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations or on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, and it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short, and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve, um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? Yeah, it's, it's interesting today, too, working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my, essentially, my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, 
is really, it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in, bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're passionate about the environment or national security or health care, you know, public health, 
and you're going to get in there quickly <laughs> and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.